Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay episode from 2019 with Perna Bell. She's an award-winning journalist of over 15 years. She used to work as the UK editor and global head of lifestyle for Huffington Post. And she's the author of three books. Her debut non-fiction was called Chase the Rainbow and it's a moving memoir about how Perna's life was affected but not defined by the suicide of her husband, Rob. Perna's second book, In Search of Silence, is out now, all about her deeply personal journey which asks us all to define what happiness means what solitude means and how we go in search of our own journeys in this episode we discuss the inspiration behind this second memoir her wariness of self-help books what she's learned along the way and since this recording she's also released another book called stronger changing everything i know about women's strength part memoir part manifesto this book explores old-fashioned notions and long-held beliefs about what getting strong means and for someone who's trying to do more exercise for the very reason of getting stronger i really love following purna's work so hope you enjoy this replay and go and check out all of her work How did it come about to do a follow-up memoir? I didn't actually plan to. Uh, I was in Yamcha with my editor at the time and I think I was having a whinge about something and I was telling her my plans. Basically, I I wanted to quit my job and I wanted to go travelling. And as I was trying to articulate the words to her without it sounding like a very cliche of woman quits job, goes travelling, finds self... Um, she just said, well, you know, why do you want to do that? Or what are the reasons for you doing that? And I just said, look, you know, listed all these reasons and just said that I think I need to have a proper think about what I want my life to look like and what I want to be in it. And she said, well, why don't you write a book about that? And I just, I think at the time my facial expression um was a bit mixed because I hadn't really thought of doing another book. For me, Chase the Rainbow was uh, for a very specific purpose. It was to raise awareness, you know, about very specific issues uh, around mental health and so on. And I didn't really look at my life as something that was necessarily going to fuel books because that's not really what my journalism was about at the time. And I think that as I was talking it through with her, she just said, you know, the things that you are uh, pondering about and the expectations that you have of your life, actually, a lot of people will be able to understand that and it might resonate with them because I think in a general sense, lots of people wonder those things about their lives. Mm -hmm. So I think I went away and had a think about it and I just thought, you know what, I'm going to quit my job anyway. I am going to go and do this reflection and and have this time alone. So if I can write a book about it, and and it's hugely enjoyable writing it, then I might as well. I wondered how did you choose where to go? Because obviously New Zealand and India and going around the UK, those are three places that are obviously very close to you. Yeah, so when I thought about where I was going to go, um, I wanted to visit and spend time in places in a much slower way than I normally would have spent time in them. So New Zealand is where my late husband is from. It's where the majority of my in-laws are. Uh, India is where my family is from, where I grew up for about five years from the ages of seven to 12. Um, And, you know, England is obviously where I live. Insofar as that whole finding yourself thing, you know, I didn't really want 
to do that, quite frankly. That's not really what the intention was. It was to revisit places which, let's say, I had been to as a child and to see the comparative point between the kind of person that I was now, uh, the person I, who I changed and turned into after Rob's passing away, um, but also discovering new things about them. Like India, for example, is this place that you know, is can be considered to be hugely frantic. When someone tells me that they're visiting India for the first time, uh, there's this like kind of mad fear lurking behind their eyes because they've heard stories or they're just worried it's going to be really full on. And yeah, absolutely. You know, like a lot of um, places and developing countries, the cities can be unbelievably stressful places. But India has so much to her that is absolutely about solitude and peace and calm. And I'm not talking about necessarily going to a bloody yoga retreat, just, you know, the type of landscape that you can get lost in. And I just really wanted to experience that and get lost in that. And the same with New Zealand in that, you know, there are anchors that um, I think hold me to certain places around the world. And New Zealand, for sure, you know, Auckland is one of those places which... Um, which is where Rob died and where he is buried and so on. But I definitely wanted to go to the rest of New Zealand and I wanted to go to visit parts of the coastline that were really wild and really untamed. And rather than, you know, coming across some white bearded yogi who was going to like point the way, I just wanted to kind of look into that landscape and just look at what was reflected back and see if there was any sense that came mm. from that. So that's why those three specific places, I wanted to go to places that actually had meant something to me at various points in time previously. And I know the first chapter is Eat, Pray, Fuck You. <laughs> and it's like such a good opening chapter because, you know, we all know that, that very um, specific stereotype. But at the same time, to be forgiving to Eat, Pray, Love, you know, there must be a reason why a lot of incredible women, especially, end up in these situations where they're like, no, fuck it, I'm going to kind of do this thing. And one of my favorite books is Wild by Cheryl Strayed. I love that book. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that it's funny you say, though, mention those two books, actually, because I didn't mention Cheryl's um, book in, in mine. But when I had writer's block and I was in that space where I was just thinking, oh my God, why have I agreed to do a second book? No one is going to read this. It's just going to be a load of shit. And I just was trying to figure out um, to get some sense of what I should do and so on. And I just thought, okay, these those were the two books. So Eat, Pray, Love was one of them um, and Wild was the other. And, and now, Wild, just for the listeners, is about an author yeah. dealing with grief as well. And then Elizabeth Gilbert's book is about so marriage breakup. So Wild is, um, you know, Cheryl Strayed uh, was dealing with addiction, um, was in recovery. It was after a marriage broke up and she basically walked the, um, the PCT, uh, which is obviously a very grueling, like, personal journey. Whereas I think Elizabeth Gilbert's was... Um, I think she was, it was off the back of her marriage um, failing, um, but she went to various places around the world and so on. And they've got very different approaches than, I guess, what they're looking for in their backgrounds, actually. Mm. I really resonated um, with Cheryl's book. And there were parts of it which, uh, you know, I, I don't know, uh, you know, they just weren't necessarily the same as my journey, but I kind of understood that, that real sense of getting lost within. A landscape, And I think with Elizabeth's book, 
and I I realize what the title sounds like, but you know, I totally respect the fact that there are so many women. That is a massively best-selling book, and there are so many people who adore that book and who have found solace and comfort in it. But I just could not do that. You know, it just didn't do that for me. And I think that what I think unifies those two books with that sense of what you're asking about in terms of women you know, quitting things is that most of us have been raised with this idea of domesticity being the ultimate goal. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how successful you are in your career. You know, those, those really are the two things like having kids, getting married, settling down. And I'm not saying that men don't necessarily have those same pressures, but I think that once you kind of reach a certain point in your life, I can't remember how old Cheryl was when she did hers, but I know Gilbert was definitely in her like similar age to me. So I'm 38. And when I decided to do this, I was 36. Um, And when I say this, I mean, quit my job and go traveling. But I think there is something that is both terrifying in terms of just cutting yourself free from, you know, the things that you're told make your life very safe Mm -hmm. Um, and being able to just go off there and actually saying at that particular time in your life, when especially your 30s, when there's all this pressure for women on, you know, finding the right person and you need to have kids by a certain age because of, you know, biological imperative and so on. Um, I think that there is something that is ultimately very freeing about being able to do that, about be, being able to say, you know what? Yes, I'm in my the later part of my 30s. No, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen with my life. This is just something I really want to do. Mm-hmm. Whereas the kind of counterpoint to all of that actually is um, or how I've been raised is by that point in my life, actually, I should be very much entrenched in raising a family and having people depend upon me. And so the idea of being able to do that, especially with my career, which was going really well at that point in time, I think, um, I think to be perfectly honest, actually made me a stronger person having done that than it probably would have been if I just stayed in the job and had just gone, you know, one rung or two rungs up the ladder in terms of seniority. Do you think that we reject the kind of eat, pray, love format because we don't want to do anyone else's journey and to go and do any sort of like formulaic go and sort my life out journey it's like that's not what this is that's not what this book is this is very much your story i mean the reason why for example something like eat pray love is so popular apart from the fact that the author genuinely believes in this sense of magic about life which is actually yeah is actually really sweet to be honest i wish that i was less cynical than that and i wish that i actually believed in some um you know sort of something that was external to myself that was just kind of looking out for me because i think that there would be a lot of comfort within that but i think the reason why that book resonated with so many people is because although for me it doesn't really work in terms of someone going to seek a solution. And that's what I took away from that book, I'm afraid, which was a person who was undertaking a journey to seek the solution of whatever was going wrong with their own lives in something in, in something else or someone else. And whether or not that's the case, that's the impression that it, that it made on me. And I think that fundamentally, um, I'm not saying that we don't have free will, but I think that there is a leaning into the idea that there is a book or there is an ideology or that there is a way that is just going to make sense of the mess of your life. And I understand that there is huge comfort um, to be drawn in that. The position I think that I am coming from, and and I'm sure that there are other people that have experienced the death of a loved one who maybe don't think the same way that I do, 
But that for me has just cleared a lot of the artifice around believing in things. And it's not to say that I don't believe in people. I absolutely believe in people, in kindness, in, you know, just huge, huge volumes of empathy for, for someone who is in pain and who is sad. But that's what I believe in. I don't believe that there is, um, you know, a, a certain magic around uh, how I live my life because it just was too painful to be able to rely on something. And in those months, like shortly after Rob passed away, I begged for that. Like I desperately wanted that. I wanted something to come in and just make it even like a minuscule less shit than it was and nothing came. And I'm not saying that, that doesn't mean that I don't believe in interconnectedness of people or, you know, a certain type of spirituality around certain things and to do with the energy and matter of things. But it's why I can't really get on board with self-help. It's why I just firmly believe that there is no template for um, how I remedy my sadness that I can just like, you know, lift up like a stencil and hand over to you and expect you to be able to do the same to yours. And that's what that book is about. It's the In Search of Silence is basically about, yes, it's about the journey that I kind of went through, but it's almost the act of showing so that if someone else reads it, it might not be necessarily my way or how I've done something, but it's almost like what I would love it to be able to do is to prompt people to just really see their lives and look at what is in it and to just ask them that question, ask themselves that question of, you know, what do I have control over? Is everything in my life the way that I want it um, you know, do I feel safe? Do I feel happy? You know, is this the direction that I want things to go in? And if the answer is yes, fabulous. And if the answer is maybe, then maybe look at what you might want to do. But I'm such a strong believer in in course correcting your life. And that's not really how I've been raised, you know, like the end goal is always just to work and work and then you get your pension and then that's it. Mm. And I just think I don't want to wake up, man, when I'm like 60, 65 and just go, oh shit, like, is this the life that I chose for myself? And, and I just think that asking yourself that question all the time is just a really good way of by the time that end point comes, you know, you've got a life that you actively chose for yourself. I really like the message of that because you are saying, you know, fundamentally you do have to do your own thing. You know, it is weird that million, not millions, but a lot of people have like done the PCT trail. There's a lot of people that looked at these books to think, well, maybe I should do a similar thing so it worked for them. And actually, I think that's a nice thing to go and try. But at the end of the day, this isn't a one, two, three step remedy to to life and that's, i think and that's yeah. what i hate about you know click this list and learn how to be an overnight success and i feel like this book is like the opposite of all that stuff thanks so much <laughs> that just reminded me of that bit in gilmore girls which i just like i laughed so hard where basically um the main character lorelei gilmore goes off to do the pct and she doesn't even like make it on it she just <laughs> <laughs> she literally makes it to the back of the motel. Um, but that that being parodied and, you know, all these women who have decided to um, yeah. kind of follow in the same footsteps. I mean, I get it. I really, really understand it. I understand that when things are going on that just don't make any sense and there's no control around them, that, you know, trying to do things the way someone else did them seems like so seductive it's such a you know if it worked for them surely it'll work for me mm -hmm. i'm sure it's a principle that pushes a lot of fitness videos and a lot of you know other products 
But I think that when it comes to yourself, you know, there's a quote in that book, which, because um, I interviewed Oliver Berkman, um, who obviously writes for The Guardian around the idea of, you know, um, when you decide to make life changes and so on. And he said something along the lines of, you know, you basically got access, you've got full undiluted access to one person's thoughts and feelings and experiences and no access to anyone else's. And that idea of, um, you know, truly understanding yourself, but also understanding that what might have worked for someone else might not work for you because, you know, they had a different childhood. They, even if you are siblings, you have different childhoods, you know, I'm a massive fan in, in, in that idea of, yeah, try it, see how it works. But ultimately that work, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's got to come from yourself really. Mm. It's like anyone that does anything and shares anything. It's almost like we need this massive caveat. That's like, yeah. I'm not promising anything or like, I mean, I have yeah. it with my work. It, it it has been wrapped up in a little bit of a hashtag now. And it's like, I just wanted to put it out there. I could have not, I could have just not done it, but I decided to, but that doesn't mean that I'm now responsible for things that don't work out or things that are different for other people. It's It's a kind of jarring one. Yeah. I mean, it's also, there's a lot of responsibility that is kind of foisted upon you that you didn't really ask for. Um, and you must have had a little bit of that as kind of this very wise and together and very articulate person around grief you know I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who look you up that has definitely taken some adjustment um I think that everyone has an idea of what they feel like inside versus I guess how they are perceived externally and I don't think I am anywhere near reconciling what those two things are I think that when you put something out there um, and I understand how this happens, you know, it's taken very literally. And so, for example, let's say I've got a viewpoint around grief and how I reconcile certain things. People take that as a given that that's how I feel all the time. With grief, you don't feel like that all the time. I mean, God, if you had one emotion that you could stick to, that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. But there are days when I'm very magnanimous and there are days when I'm very loving. And then there are days when I'm very angry and petty and, oh my God, this is really unfair. And I don't think I'm okay with this. And I don't know what the fuck is happening with my life. And I think that this kind of pressure, especially in, you know, when you write, um, and when you write a book and you are a woman and the, um, I guess the pressure to have all the answers and to have it all neatly tied up in a bow, that's something that, you know, I had to be very clear about that that's not what this book was going to be mm. because my life is an ongoing journey. Even that book, um, you know, things have moved on since then in terms of like mm. evolution of thought and I guess things that, and God, definitely from Chase the Rainbow, you know, I love that book. I will always love it. But there are things that I just know more of, and like just even in a scientific sense of knowing more about, mm. you know, depression or suicide or addiction or any one of those things. And I just think that sometimes I'm glad that the writing gives comfort to other people. I, I genuinely am because I remember what it was like, you know, being at that point where, you're just desperately searching for comfort. You're searching for some sort of thing that just makes you feel less alone in your own life. Because ultimately, you know, if especially if you are very, very close to the person that you've lost, um, that solitude and, you know, that loneliness is just is just awful, quite frankly. So the fact that there is this sort of mini community of people that 
can kind of come together around it is not something I expected, but I'm very glad that it's there. However, I've noticed this thing on Twitter and I don't really know how to handle it where, you know, if I write a piece or if I voice an opinion about something, you know, I get this very kind of passive aggressive oh, well, you know, I'm really disappointed because like Purnabelle is someone that I admire and I wouldn't expect her to have this view. And I just think, and that kicks off in me like this, my 15-year-old self that is literally like, you know, wants to just go, no, like I didn't agree to that. Like there is no policing of my behavior. I am allowed to think, do and say whatever the fuck I want on my social media channels. And if I'm going to have it, I'm great, great that you admire my writing. And, you know, and I will always, always take that um, with the greatest of love and, uh, you know, and gratitude to be quite frank. But there is no contract that I signed that said that because I write in a certain way, because I have certain views, Mm -hmm. that that now means I need to be put in a box where every single thing I say is love and light. That is not how I operate. Like the person who I am right now is not going to be the person that I am in five years. And I think that people have to be allowed to um, to change and also that you just might not agree with their opinion. That's okay. But yeah. it doesn't have to be this whole thing. Like there is nothing that I signed up to that, you know um, – I mean, Carrie Ed Lloyd does her podcast, The Griefcast, right? And there is like, there's this community of people that have experienced grief and are able to talk about it and are able to make things easier for other people. And if that's what's happening, then that's brilliant. But, and I try to be kind and I try to be compassionate just generally wherever I can, because I think that there are moments when someone has been like that with me and I've really needed it. But also I just like to try not to be a bit of a dick. And I think that those qualities are qualities that I like to aspire to, you know, in terms of just generally being a nice person that helps people. Mm. But I find this unpicking of, you know, of character um, is something that I have so, I've zero tolerance for. I have no time for it at all. It's a very you weird know? and clever way to censor people. Like Absolutely. I admire your work, but only up to the point where you don't disappoint yeah. me. And yeah. it's like, that's a really weird way to trap someone it totally is there's literally only one person that gets to use the you've disappointed me card and that's my mom yeah. <laughs> do you know what my pet so hate terrifying. is is amazon reviews i get this loads i wanted to like this <laughs> i wanted i really wanted to like this because i like emma but um really shit book <laughs> Or whatever. And I'm like, why do you have to preface it with that weird little thing? It's not even a shit sandwich. They've just given, it's like an open face <laughs> Danish. Or I have a lot of respect for this woman, if it's a man. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for this young woman, obviously doing very well for herself, but yeah. it's a load of shit. Yeah. I'd rather you just said I was shit, yeah. quite frankly. Like Same. you can keep the just admiration, the respect. Yeah. It's so annoying. I'm so glad you. I'm not alone yeah. in that. You talk about the turning point in quitting your job because I think, I don't know, I feel like, is this a millennial cliche thing to say? But mm. I feel like people are taking control of their careers in a way that has never happened before. Like we've always wanted to climb the ladder, climb the rung, have the big shiny job, sit in the corner office, make our parents proud. Now I feel like there's a new definition in town that is certainly not that of success. Yeah, I mean, I think that, so if I had to pick a generation, I think that I might be Generation X just because of my age. But when I worked at HuffPost, um, a lot of the 
women that I managed were millennials, um, if not Generation Y. And it, that gave me a really good insight because I, I was definitely raised to, you know, yeah, basically squirrel your money away, you know, um, work, 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 work. And then finally you get to retire and then go to Tenerife on holidays or whatever it is my parents do. <laughs> um, and what I remember just witnessing was, for example, um, the younger women in my team would just go quite a lot on holiday. Like, and I remember thinking, God, this is amazing because, you know, without me sounding like an old crone, like that is just not something that I did in my in my 20s. Like it's something I started doing, I guess, in my late 20s um, when I was working as a travel journalist, but we just didn't have money to do that. I, I actually heard Mary Porter say this uh, about it, about that whole thing. And I, and I really it just so opened my mind up and I was like, actually, she's got it bang on, which is that. If you are a generation who is coming up into an economy where there is literally a snowball's chance in hell of you being able to own a house or own a flat, and there is no such thing as security in you know the current climate that we're talking about with regards to work, um, yes, I would probably have wazzed you know, my money on holidays and actually enjoyed myself while doing it rather than saving it for a point in time where, I don't know, I've got some like problem with my knees or something like that. Mm. So I do, I do understand it. And I think that the, um, what I would probably say is that I've always been a grafter. And I think that in terms of the opportunities that have been afforded to me, I've always taken them and tried to just make the most of them. And I think that working in journalism it's, I mean, I'm sure that people have spoken to you about this before, but there are not a lot of people who look like me in journalism. So when you are given an opportunity as a woman of color, you have to literally work twice as hard as everyone else. However, having said that, um, the kind of the, the issue with work and I guess the type of mentality that's been drummed into me about always having to be hardworking is quite frankly, that has to, there's a point to that, you know, there's, there's a limit to some of that. And I think that, yes, I did quit my job and go traveling, but I also did that when I was 27. So I quit, uh, I was working for News UK and I quit my job to go traveling for about three months. Um, it was a completely different type of trip. There was no real structure to it. I blew all of my money within the first three weeks of traveling. Um, I had an amazing time. But the reason why I'd quit my job wasn't because I was being lazy and it wasn't because, you know, I um, I was being flighty about it. I'd, li I'd reached a point where I just mentally could not do that job anymore. You know, I had a, a horrendous boss. Uh, the hours were disgusting. And but back then we didn't really, you know, you couldn't really say to someone like that. We didn't have the vocabulary to talk about, you know, mental well-being and so on. But I definitely looking back on it had reached a point where I'd hit a wall and I couldn't do it anymore. Mm. So I think fast forward to present day. Um, yes, you know what, Emma, I do come across people where they've been given opportunities around stuff and it just has absolutely flabbergasted me that they've just wasted them or just haven't really approached it with the same passion that I possibly would have done or hard work. But on the other hand, you know, increasingly what I have seen, and I just think, God, good on you, is that I think people are becoming a lot more aware of what that limit is between what they're willing to sacrifice for their personal life and their emotional and mental well-being and what they are willing to do for work. And mm. I just think that that can only be really a good thing. Frankly. Yeah. And also finding your own balance because I just find it really weird that someone, don't know who, but like 
someone random out there has like decided what a work-life balance looks like and mm. like you're failing if you work too much you're failing if you work too little and it's like why do we have to have this like elusive balance like why can't we just all go towards our certain ratio because you just have to do what works for you I think yeah absolutely so did you find that right balance then after you quit Huffington Post was that quite a bit that was quite a big decision then I mean that was a massive decision because um it was uh, within a company it was the most senior job that I'd ever held um and also you know I managed um I managed a big team and so there were lots of people that I was very invested into seeing how their careers were going to turn out and so on and I think that um you know the, the what I would say is that there were, there came a point. So I actually used to love working for a corporation because I had gone freelance. Um, it was very bad. Like I was a very bad freelancer back in the day. You know, I had no structure. I earned like no money. And then I got my first job working for Microsoft and then um, moved on to HuffPost. And the the kind of structure of a corporation was actually really comforting, you know, and not to have mm -hmm. to worry about certain things. But it had gotten to that point where things just felt just I felt quite trapped and I felt quite trapped by the money that I was earning, the fact that, you know, if I left, would I be able to earn a living and so on? And also, you know, just at the same time, just really worried that if I left, my career would just completely crumble and turn to dust. And I, I remember talking to my sister about it and she's really, you know, my, my main sounding board when it comes to this kind of stuff. And she just said, look, like all of these things that make you good at your job. She was like, admittedly, yes, you got the opportunity, you know, someone gave you a chance and so on. But she said, all of these things that make you good at your job, when you leave the like physical confines of that office, do they go with you or is it like your stapler and you leave it behind? And I just said, okay, I take them mm. with me. <laughs> and then just had to think about all of that stuff. Like I will always be a hard worker. I will always be a grafter. Um, I will always try and take a risk with things and, you know, and, and to just think slightly differently where possible. And those are things I love doing. And if I can do that at HuffPost and had gotten to the position that I got to, that was wonderful. And that was evidence of hard work. And also just, you know, having really great people that advocated for me. But those skills don't disappear just because I'm not, you know, working within that construct. And so actually working in the way that I am now, which is I do work for myself. Um, yes, I am a slightly harder boss than I think, mm -hmm. you know, working for a company. But on the other hand, the work is about a thousand times more rewarding because all of it, majority of it is work that I really want to do and not dross mm. basically, which is kind of how I think that when you are a creative person that moves into a management role and you just find yourself in like meeting after meeting and you're just thinking, what is this? Like, this is not what I signed up to do. Um, I'm very glad that I now have a career, which means that I'm doing the majority of what I've always wanted to do and working across different things. Yeah. And you got the stylist woman of the year award. <laughs> I'd love to say it's woman of the year. It was the rising star. The rising star. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, that's even better. <laughs> Put the word star in there. Thanks. Um, but no, it is incredible watching all these things pay off and that, you know, it's totally your own doing and you're in control of it. And I did want to ask you a little bit about how you do set boundaries though, because although and people ask me this all the time, like it's such a pro to choose your own career and projects, but on the flip side, it's like your office is always yeah. on. I wondered, 
you know, having some of your work based around mm. something so close to you that happened to you. And, you know, talking about Rob so much with your last book, how do you, what do you do when suddenly you're like, no, I, I need some me time and yeah. like no one can contact me right now. So when I worked at HuffPost, I worked, um, one of the big areas that I worked in was well-being, And so um, in terms of just developing those mechanisms to handle stressful situations, coping mechanisms, I guess, um, I was already in a very good place around that. And when I worked there, even though I did work in a corporation, um, you know, I made sure that I didn't keep uh, completely crazy hours and also that there was a distinction between my personal life um, and my work life. Mm -hmm. And there were just things that I fortified myself with sleep and so on. Now that I am freelance and definitely talking about, um, you know, just issues like a grief and Rob and so on, is that um, what I worked out is, and this came at, you know, this came at a price and I learned this last year where there was a really big learning point around why I had been saying yes to so many things, you know, whether that was talking about um, uh, mental health or Rob or grief and addiction and so on. And a lot of it is not necessarily paid, you know, so a lot of it is kind of uh, just helping people out. And I think last year I was talking to my therapist about this and um, we kind of had this like major breakthrough around just what I think about certain things like, you know, my love life and work life and so on. And the the fact is, is that I can say things like when someone dies by suicide, you know, you shouldn't feel guilty. I can give you like the list of reasons as to why you shouldn't feel like that. But basically, I had never forgiven myself around his death. And like when I say that, I didn't realize how huge a part that entire imperative and that emotion was in every aspect of my life had informed everything that I had done. You know, it hadn't even come close. And actually, to be perfectly frank, I think I was almost like it was just like penance, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And then I had just reached this point where I was just exhausted by it and I just couldn't really, you know, I think it was around suicide prevention week last year, which would have been September. Um, and I could just feel like the shutters just coming down around it. And I, I just think that, you know, exhausting myself around talking about it around that week, um, discussing with my therapist and kind of making this breakthrough around what I really needed to do in terms of forgiveness for myself, um, that helped me uh, really become discerning about what I chose to do and what I um, don't do. I can't do everything. You know, the problem that we have, especially with suicide, is that you just don't have enough spokespeople out there. You don't have enough people telling their stories. It's not to pressure or guilt someone into saying it, but there just aren't enough people out there who are able to do it in a way that helps to kind of push things forward. So for now, yes, there are some things that I might have to do because there just isn't the person there. Mm -hmm. However, is it my responsibility and do I carry the weight of all of that? Absolutely no, I don't. You know, there are lots of individuals and organizations um, who, who also are working towards, you know, things like zero suicide and so on. But also more importantly, is that if all of this stuff is coming at a huge personal cost to myself and my mental health, then no, I can't do it. It's not really a price that I'm willing to pay any longer. Mm -hmm. So 
I've developed a system and checks of, you know, when, of how much pro bono stuff I do a month, which in my head is this like rough percentage of work. Mm. Um, I ask questions now. So for example, um, you know, if someone's asked me to do something, I don't really do things that have a very small reach because it's just cumulatively, I just can't do it physically and mentally mm. anymore. But also increasingly it becomes something that I talk about less and less. It might feel like I talk about it a lot um, because I think stuff gets shared a lot, maybe, perhaps, or I share stuff a lot on my Instagram when it when it kind of happens because I know I've got this community that like follows on Twitter and Instagram. But I know that the amount of stuff that I've kind of turned down in the last three to four months um, has been a fair amount, really. And compared to last year, where I would just have literally said yes to mm. everything, I would have felt like I had to, I should, I would have been letting people down if I didn't. Um, I'm actually really proud of the fact that I've managed to do that because it's taken a lot of work to be able to say no and then not spend like the next five hours afterwards beating myself up mm. because I feel really bad and, you know, yes. guilty. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. I feel like that in itself is like an amazing life lesson for absolutely any situation. Like, sh you know, we should always unpick and just have a little moment before we agree to do something. Why are we saying yes to this? Yeah, well, it's also, I think I had this conversation with someone who um, runs a startup and, you know, she was just saying, I feel so guilty and I don't know how to reconcile that guilt. Um, and I think what a mutual friend of ours said to her was, listen, um, there is an arrogance within that you, that you need to recognize. You know, this no one other, cares that much. Really. Yeah, <laughs> it's like this event is still going to go ahead without you. So um, the event's going to go ahead without you. They will still be able to write that feature. It's just you know, it would have been great if you could have done it. Um, yes, in some instance, it might mean a lot to the other person if you could, but realistically you can't I mean you can't clone yourself you can't do everything so I think just being a bit more selective and and the thing is I don't always um do you know the biggest thing or the thing that I know will will get the most reach um if someone like I'm such a softie about this kind of stuff like if someone has you know a really strong and compelling reason or a story um and and it really resonates with me and I feel like oh my god like that's hit me right in my heart and I really want to do this and I want to help them because also I see that they've got the potential to take whatever project it is that they're working on and just build on it and in like one to two years it's going to be this completely different thing hundred percent like I'll get involved and I'll help them out with because also it's a paying it's a paying it forward thing you know there are many times at the start of my career when someone just gave me the time of day when they really didn't need to give me the time of day and I think being able to kind of also just remember that yeah. to me is a really important point to I think remain humble and to remember where you came from totally and also I feel like that's part of just being a journalist like you're always yes. on the lookout for like <laughs> cool new people or things that's amazing so just before i ask you my last question i i wanted to go a little bit rogue but it is sort of related because it's about you and it's about strength do you you do weightlifting i do powerlifting can can i i mean do you mind just sharing a little bit about that because i feel like that must be something that makes you feel great yeah i mean i could talk about this hours and hours <laughs> but i won't but it's powerlifting is something that um was very surprising it started initially as as strength training and weight training and um basically i had just gotten to the point about two three years ago where 
Um, I think because Rob wasn't around and he always used to do the heavy lifting and stuff. And I just was like, I really want to be able to carry my own luggage. Like it literally started like, I want to carry my own luggage and be able to move furniture around in my house and not have to call a guy. And also I don't really know anyone that really lives near me, you know, I kind of wanted to be as self-sufficient as possible. So yeah, so it started off as that because I just, I, I, very, I wanted to be very fiercely independent physically around that kind of stuff. But I was still really like, which is the majority of women who start weightlifting was mm, I don't want to get too big and this that and the other and had all of these ideas of you know looking too bulky mm-hmm. and so on and just very incorrect ideas around weight training and last year I got a new trainer um, who actually um, his name is Jack and he does powerlifting professionally and it's not something he really even mentioned when we started working out to be honest I, I just kind of went there because I wanted to lose a bit of weight I'd put on like quite a bit of weight after my sabbatical because I just ate a shitload of cheese and drank wine and then he was helping me with that and then there was this local competition in our gym and he said look why don't you just sign up for it because you know it'll be a good way of focusing your training and I thought he was just mad because it just seemed like really like full on and basically powerlifting is it looks epic thanks it's and it's also so it's, i guess fun. it's like that shock value of like yeah. because you don't look like you can't like in yeah. the nicest possible way thanks. like you're very small yeah. and then you're carrying this like yeah. huge massive thing but you should see like the thing i love about it that love about powerlifting as a sport is like if you looked at my entire team and you saw them walking down the street like you would never in a million years be able to guess what they can lift or squat or whatever and there's no particular like aesthetic type it's just that's what i really really love about it it's so inclusive so but cool. yeah so i decided to um my first competition was two weeks ago um and it was honestly emma it is the most amount of fun i think i never was sporty i was always like the runt of the litter you know the last person picked (laughs) in school teams because i was so short um you know never really a team player like always went to the gym on my own or ran alone or whatever didn't really like doing classes but now i find myself i'm part of a team um i do competitions in i don't know if you've ever seen a powerlifting singlet is i want to see it it is the ugliest thing you've ever seen it's basically like a wrestling like unitard thing um it is yeah i can't believe that that is what i do and i love it that is really cool because i guess it's Mm. i don't know if this is like a cliche question but like surely physical stuff like that helps mentally and vice versa yeah this is the first time that I've ever really not worried about um, what kind of, I mean, yes, you know, when you're training for a competition, you kind of, you might want to eat in a way that fuels your training. So like, let's say you might want to have more protein or whatever, but when you're not training, um, that that aesthetic that you work towards, which is, you know, constantly feeling like you're never slim enough, like that has just like disappeared. Like it's Mm -hmm. just gone and, I, th- I feel like as long as I kind of keep doing this, because uh, it's something that's so positive and it makes me feel so good um, because you know what your body's capability is versus what it looks like. I just think it's such a hugely mm. positive thing. And like, this is the thing where I'm just like, why did no one tell me this? Why, like, why does no one tell women this is there is an actual power that you're that you have in terms of physicality when you can do something like this mm-hmm. and how that radiates and translates into every other aspect of your life and i just i f- on one hand feel so sad that i learned this so late but on the other hand i'm so glad that i learned mm-hmm. it that's so inspiring thanks i need to do something like that now immediately and my last question is can you talk me through a new tattoo <laughs> 
or is that not allowed? Are you talking about the one that I'm too scared to show? I don't know. I was oh. so, I was sort of looking at this one, oh. but then I saw that you have a new one. Yes, but you don't have to show me. Just it, could I just know a little bit about it? So uh, yes. Well, my dad asked me with this really traumatized look on his face um, as to <laughs> as to why I got them done because I think he thought it was like a new thing, and I just said, Dad, like I got my first tattoo when I was seventeen. Like this isn't triggered by life events, and this is you know me having some kind of like crisis or something. But he, I did, after we had that conversation, I did think, well, actually, why do I get them done? And I don't know. I, mm. I mean, I really, I I can't really unpick it, but I just think I really like the way that they look. Whenever I've had them done, they usually mark, um, not necessarily the design so much, but they usually mark maybe how I'm feeling or an achievement. Or So the tattoo I got on my back on the, on, uh, the new one was after my first comp. So my this first um, powerlifting gym comp that I did, um, I got that done after mm. that. And it was, I just felt so strong and I just felt so capable. And I just thought, I want this tattoo done anyway. It's like a floral piece. But also I love the fact that it's anchored to a time, you know, yeah. when I just felt like that. I love that because it's just celebrating and marking an occasion and yeah. it looks really cool. <laughs> I'm fascinated in tattoos. And I also Thank find you. it interesting when like the, I don't know anyone that just has one. Mm. So. so I know one, only one person who is my sister um, and she did find it very painful. Right. But I don't really find them. The, yeah. I mean, they're not great. You know, it's not like getting a massage at Cowshed or something, but it's <laughs> not that bad. If it was, God, would be covered. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Congratulations on your new book that is coming out very soon. And um, I can't wait to just follow everything that you do in the future as well. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. Thank you.